Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. We hope that it will encourage you as you seek to follow God and grow in your faith. If you would like to know more about our church, you can check us out at www.ritmangrace.org or feel free to email us at ritmangbc at aol.com. But for right now, let's get into today's message. Good morning, everyone. It's great to be here with you. Hopefully you're having a a good weekend so far and staying warm. Uh, Winter finally showed up, so that's really fun. Hopefully you like the snow because we're getting a little bit of that. Uh, My name is Clark, and if we have never met, I'd love to meet you and get to know you and your family a little bit uh, out in the lobby after service if you want to stick around. But uh, I'm excited to continue this uh, conversation that we've been in through the book of Titus. If you're just now jumping in with us, you're kind of catching us in the middle of a conversation we started a few weeks ago. Uh, We are going through one of the books of the New Testament. It's actually a letter by Paul. Uh, Paul, one of the most influential leaders of the early church. Uh, He's writing to Titus, one of his companions uh, throughout his missionary journeys in the first century of the New Testament. We read about that. And it's been really awesome to kind of make some of those connections from uh, back during the first century time when uh, Titus was kind of overseeing these network of churches on the island of Crete, uh, as we talked about in a couple weeks past. And we've been able to learn a little bit about uh, the church and how that applies directly to us today. And so if you missed any of these conversations, I would encourage you to go to our website, ritmandgrace.org. You can access our sermon archive, or you can uh, subscribe to the podcast. Just search on your digital device, Ritman Grace, go to uh, subscribe to the podcast, get all caught up. But if you're just now jumping in, let me just kind of quickly recap what we've talked about so far. In week one, uh, we talked about kind of the historical background, uh, kind of what is this letter really all about that Paul's writing to Titus. In week number two, we talked a little bit about this idea of leadership and how it's really important to have good leadership in the church and make sure that the gospel, the story of Jesus is being preached. And we talked about this idea of false teachers and how uh, back in this time, uh, false teachers were taking the message of the gospel. They were corrupting it and distorting it. And so Paul addresses that to Titus. In week number three, uh, Pastor Bud mentioned this, but we issued a challenge during week three. We talked about generational discipleship and pouring into and investing into the next generation, both spiritually and relationally. And we issued you a challenge called the First John Connect, where we encouraged uh, older folks to get together with some younger folks and maybe um, do this five-week discussion guide through First John. It's a New Testament book of the Bible, five chapters. So we said, hey, how cool would it be if, uh, people paired up and they got together for one hour once a week for five weeks and went through First John. And uh, by the way, if, if you're younger too, it would be awesome to ask somebody older than you as well if they would want to do the First John Connect with you as well. So if you don't know what that is, check out week number three and listen to that, or you can ask me or Pastor Bud, and we'd love to resource you with those. Like he mentioned, there's a stack of them out in the Welcome Center, and so we just want to encourage you to take advantage of that and uh, be challenged in some sort of way as well. So, so week four, last week, Pastor Bud talked about this idea of doctrine and, and duty, which is always a fun word to say. 
Um, and so this week we're actually going to continue the conversation. Whoops, skipped ahead. Spoiler alert. Um, we're going to talk about this idea of new birth and new life. And uh, so, so me and my wife actually, this is really fitting. We're actually going to have a new uh, member of our family. So August fourth uh, is the new day. Yeah. So we're really excited. I'm excited to be a dad, and she's really excited to be a mom. Definitely excited, and uh, so we're re really looking forward to that. It's going to be a really good time. So I wish she was here because she could tell you a lot more about that. She's not only the, the mother, but she's also a nurse uh, at a children's hospital. So so you can ask me, and I'll try my best. And uh, but you could pray for us that the pregnancy would go smoothly. You could pray for me that I don't mess up the child too bad. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, just pray for me that way. Um, but yeah, we're, it's a really fitting uh, message title, New Birth and New Life, and I'm excited because we're going to talk a little bit about that. Uh, the Bible is going to talk about this new birth and new life in terms of salvation, uh, the idea of being saved, which I'm sure uh, a lot of us are probably really surprised that we would talk about salvation on a Sunday morning at church. Uh, when I say you know, we're going to talk about being saved and salvation. For some of us, uh, we might be thinking uh, we've heard a lot of messages about that, right? We grew up hearing messages about that, and we're always hearing people say, you need to get saved, or you need to, you know, have Jesus rescue you from your sins, and uh, salvation is a good thing. Others of us, we might think, uh, we might be tempted to think salvation, it, it kind of seems like something of the past, right? It seems like something that our grandparents or great-grandparents did, and you know, we might be tempted to think we live in a modern world now, right? And, and we're enlightened and uh, we're rational thinkers. And uh, that just seems like something of the past. And let me just encourage you as uh, not only just one of your pastors, but as your friend as well. Um, if we think that salvation, the message of salvation is irrelevant in our modern world, then might I suggest that we may not be paying that close attention. Uh, because there are messages of salvation everywhere. It's very pervasive in our culture. In fact, uh, we see it a lot of times in advertisements, if you think about it. And they don't always use religious and spiritual language. But make no mistake, there's still messages of salvation. I've encountered a lot of these throughout my life. In fact, uh, just indulge me for a moment. Let me try to give you a couple examples of what I'm talking about. So example number one. It might look like this. There's something wrong with you. You know what it is? You're out of shape. But if you join our gym or commit to our workout plan, we can save you and deliver you from the hell of unhealthiness. <laughs> or how about this one? There's something wrong with you. You know what it is? You're bored. Your life is lame. But if you drink this beer, if you go to this club, or if you listen to this band, you can be saved from the hell of boredom. Or how about this one? There's something wrong with you. You know what it is? You're uneducated. But thankfully, we have a degree completion program that if you will be a part of it, you can be saved from the hell of ignorance. Okay, last one. There's something wrong with you. You know what it is? You're not in a relationship. But if you sign up for eHarmony.com or Christian Mingle, then you can be delivered from the hell of your loneliness. You see, salvation messages, we see them all the time. Like I said, they're, they're pervasive in our culture. They really are. We see them in our advertisements. And uh, the thing is, with those examples, maybe you can identify with one of them. The thing is, uh, they actually tap into the reality that there's something not complete about us. 
that we're fallen, we're broken individuals. But fortunately for us, the Bible speaks to us about a real salvation. And there's no marketing, there's no spin. It's the real deal. And so we have an opportunity this morning as we look at Titus chapter 3. Uh, we get to see the real salvation. And we have an opportunity to, I don't know if you guys do this, but Titus chapter 3, the paragraph we're going to look at, the early, early church actually uh, a lot of scholars and commentators think that it was a creed that the church would actually summarize. Uh, they would say this and it would summarize salvation. And so I'm really excited to look at that with you this morning as we look at the real salvation that has eternal uh, profound implications in our life. So if you've got your Bibles, go with me to Titus chapter 3. And we can find that on page 844 in those black Bibles if you want to grab one of those. And uh, get to Titus chapter 3. That's where we're going to be camping out this morning. So Paul's writing to Titus. And we're starting at chapter 3, verse 1. It says this. Remind the people to be subject to rulers and authorities. To be obedient. To be ready to do whatever is good. To slander no one. To be peaceable and considerate and always to be gentle toward everyone. I just want us to notice this part here where Paul says to Titus... He's supposed to be subject to rulers and authorities. Uh, if we take that word subject and we shove it back in the original language, we get this fun word, hupotasso, which means to subordinate. And the problem with that word was the political climate during this time. If we think our political climate is, is bad today, uh, just put yourself in the people of Crete's shoes. They lived uh, during a, a time uh, called the Pax Romana, which you can forget that, but what that means is Roman peace. And this was a period of 217 years where it was really a time of flourishing for, for Rome. And this was a time where the Roman Empire was expanding, and it was just a time of flourishing. So if you were a Roman citizen, then this would be pretty sweet for you. But if you weren't a Roman citizen, then this was a time where you could be treated like a second-class citizen in your own home. And so what Paul is saying to Titus, it really would be not an easy pill to swallow for, for Titus or the people in the church in which he was commissioned to pastor. And so he continues on and he says uh, to be obedient. And so this was a time where they were learning not only what it was like to be submissive to Scripture, the Word of God, but also what it meant to be submissive to the government authorities. A lot of commentators and scholars uh, they say that during this time, emperor worship was not yet demanded. And so uh, during that time, uh, uh, there was a time where that was demanded, but this is not one of those cases. If you're a Bible person, you might recall in Acts chapter 5, where Peter and the disciples are being uh, told by the Jewish council to not preach the name of Jesus, to which their response is, we must obey God rather than human beings. But this isn't one of those cases. Paul's saying, and in this scenario, it's actually good that they would be submissive to the government authorities, which is a challenge to all of us today, too, that we ought to consider our testimony as a follower of Christ and how that could impact other people on how we would submit to the government authorities. He continues on and he says this, that to be peaceable and considerate and always to be gentle towards everyone. So notice that word everyone my problem with that word everyone is that it means everyone. And so that means that if we're followers of Jesus, that if we have a neighbor that's stealing our trash bin every once in a while, 
that we have a call to be gentle, to be humble, and, and, and considerate to that person. Uh, if we're a follower of Christ, it means that for, you know, if we're telling the kid for the 47,000th time to not play on your lawn, there's a call to be gentle and to be considerate and humble towards that person. If we're a follower of Christ, we have a, a co-worker or an employer that we may not see eye to eye with, or they may tell, be telling us to do something unethical, there's a call for us to be gentle and humble and considerate towards that person. Or for, uh, for some of us that maybe there's somebody that you know or, or, or someone that uh, you've heard of, maybe they have a, a spouse that's not uh, faithful or uh, someone that's not willing to serve there's still a call, even when the person doesn't deserve it, there's a call to be humble and, and loving and considerate towards that person. So that's what Paul's kind of getting at here. He continues on and he says, at one time, we too were foolish. We were disobedient. We were deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And so verse 3, notice this first part here. He says that we were disobedient, enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. And so Paul's point here is really this idea that when we remove God from the equation, then we try to fill that emptiness with other things, other passions and pleasures. And really that doesn't work out too well for us. I love what uh, uh, Blaise Pascal said, there is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man that cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator made known through Jesus Christ. And so again, what Blaise Pascal is saying is, is what we just talked about, how we remove God from the situation and what we often try to do, our natural pro, uh, proclivity is to try to fill that emptiness with something else. But it usually just doesn't do the trick. Only God can fulfill that happiness. And so he continues on and he says, we live in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. And so a lot of times, the, the idea that Paul's kind of getting at here is that uh, a lot of times if we try to replace God with, with something or someone, we will end up hating the very person or thing that we become obsessed with. I love the way that uh, Jonathan Edwards, he's an American theologian, he says, one of the greatest evils of idolatry is that if we idolize, we must also demonize. And so this idea of idolatry, it's oftentimes we can uh, commit idolatry by making a good thing an ultimate thing in our life. Uh, a spouse, a family, a career, those are all really good things. But when we turn that good thing into an ultimate thing, that turns into idolatry. Those things were not meant to, to bear that kind of weight. Only God was meant to bear that kind of weight. And so what we inevitably do is we try to make those things our gods, and then it doesn't usually end well at all. We demonize those things. Uh, sometimes we can be so obsessed with something or someone that we actually want to destroy anyone that gets in the way of that. Here's a good example. If you think of the movie Lord of the Rings, uh, the ring was... The one thing that represents the thing that you want more than anything else or anyone else. And, and again, what happens is that you want to destroy anything or anyone that would get in the way of that. And if you're familiar with the movie Lord of the Rings, if you haven't, homework challenge, watch Lord of the Rings. But you become this guy, right? You become Gollum, right? And anything that gets between you and your precious, you want to destroy that. And so this is, this is the idea of, of what happens to us. Verse 3 is really not a popular message. 
I probably won't get invited to the Oprah Winfrey show by preaching on verse 3. But verse 3 is really important because if we don't understand our total depravity and our sin, then we'll never be able to understand the gospel. And so there is hope. He continues on and he says this, but, which I'm just going to pause right there. That word alone, that word but, if you circle or underline in your Bibles, this might be a good word for you to circle or underline because this is a big but. And I know what that sounds like. But I just want to tell you, the beauty of the gospel is in that word, but. Because what that means is that in light of everything that we just talked about in verse 3, right? Verse 3 is really not a fun verse to read. But if, if, we, skip to, if we skip ahead to verse 4 too quickly, then we'll, we'll miss God's grace altogether, right? We, we always want to get quickly to the gospel, but if we don't understand our depravity, we really won't be able to understand or appreciate God's grace in our lives. And so... I love the way that Charles Spurgeon said it. He said, too many think lightly of sin and therefore think lightly of the Savior. And so, again, I think what Charles Spurgeon is saying is, is right on because that's oftentimes what happens is that we fail to understand our depravity and our sin. And, and we're not able to really get a hold of and download the grace of God and how we really need it saved and rescued from something that we're more messed up than we think we are. And so he continues on and he says, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth, renewal of the Holy Spirit. And you notice that word love there. That word love is philanthropia, which you can forget that, but it's actually where we get our word philanthropy or philanthropic. It's this idea that God was so generous to us that he paid a debt that we could never, ever pay back. And so God is incredibly generous. And because of his radical grace, notice what he says, he saved us. And the word he is really key here because Jesus is the only one involved in this equation, right? My part, Clark did all the sinning. Jesus did all the saving, right? He's not in verse three and I'm not in verse four. And that's a really important distinction to make because Jesus saved it. Notice what Paul says. He saved us not because of the righteous things that we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through, notice, the washing of rebirth, renewal of the Holy Spirit. This idea of washing is actually really powerful. Uh, the word washing literally means to take a bath, which I think is pretty awesome. Uh, this idea of washing uh, kind of shows up. The picture of it in the New Testament is when Jesus cleanses the lepers. When I was a kid, I thought it was leopards, like the cat animal. But literally, Jesus cleanses the lepers, the people with the skin disease. And that was actually a picture of what Jesus would do with our sin. Like Jesus would cleanse us of our sins. In fact, you might remember we, we uh, sang a song of him. This is written by William Cooper. And uh, this is the song we sang earlier. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Not only about you, but that's, to me, that's a really powerful and beautiful picture of the gospel. This idea of, of washing is this, we're being plunged into the, the blood of Emmanuel. Emmanuel is Jesus, and he is cleansing us of our sins. And we sing it all the time. <clears throat> Sin left a crimson stain, and then Jesus washed us white as snow. What, what are we talking about and singing about? We're talking about the gospel. We're talking about what Jesus does with our sin, and because of his radical grace and his love, he cleanses us. And notice what Paul says next, that there is a washing, there is a 
rebirth. Some of your translations regeneration. And it's kind of this idea, Paul talks about it in 2 Corinthians 5, that, that we are a new creation in Christ. That the old is gone and the new is here. John chapter 3, we read it earlier. We are born again. It's like when you hear people say, I'm a born again Christian. What are they talking about? They're talking about John chapter 3, talking about this idea of regeneration, a rebirth. We are a new creation in Christ. And there is a new life as well. And so he continues on and he says, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. This word generously really helps us get the idea that it was free for us. Our salvation was free. It cost us nothing, but it cost God everything. It cost him his one and only son. And I love this definition of grace. I'm sure a lot of you are probably familiar with it, but grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And so, again, it didn't cost us a thing. It cost God everything. He sent Jesus to live a perfect life, to die a perfect death, to raise from the grave. And his resurrection stamp paid in full all across human history so that we could have eternal life in Christ. It's an awesome message. He continues on and he says that so that having been justified, which that's like a legal term, like a courtroom kind of term, we are declared innocent by his grace. We might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. And that word heirs, really it's this idea of we are sharers and inheritance. If you have uh, family relatives or parents that passed away, they might have left you an inheritance. And uh, so that's what we have. But Jesus, he's alive and well. But we have this inheritance. And a lot of times the Bible describes our salvation in family-like terms, which is kind of fascinating. If you are a Bible person, you might be familiar how the Bible says in the Gospel of John and book of Romans, how we are children of God and other places like Hebrews and Galatians talks about this sonship, how we are sons and daughters. We're part of God's family. And because of that, our, our salvation, we have inherited something that the Bible calls the hope of eternal life. And so how cool is that? When we're part of God's family, we are his son or his daughter and we get to inherit eternal life with Jesus. So I think that's pretty awesome. And so notice he kind of closes up this passage by saying this. This is a trustworthy saying. Uh, the word tr trustworthy kind of shows up five times throughout the pastoral epistles. And it really is this idea of uh, pastoral epistles, by the way, 1st, 2nd Timothy and the book of Titus. But uh, this trustworthy statement uh, really means mark it down. Write this down, memorize it, sing it, tie it to your heart because this truth of the gospel is going to correct us in life. It's going to help us remember who we are and whose we are. And it's kind of a big deal. So he says, this is a trustworthy saying. I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to notice doing what is good. And so this idea of doing what is good, or some of your translations might say good works, it's this idea that uh, some of us, we can read that and look at it and think that it's almost paramount to salvation as if we have to do good works to earn salvation. That is not what Paul is talking about here. He's talking about as a response to God's love, we will do good works. The Bible talks a lot about how you know what kind of tree it is by the fruit that it produces. You know that a uh, orange tree is an orange tree when it grows oranges. An apple tree is an apple tree when it grows apples. Well, a Jesus tree is going to produce Jesus kind of fruit. So that has us uh, evaluate ourselves. A better way to think about it and explain it would be uh, my relationship with my wife. 
I love my wife. I do not love folding laundry. <laughs> but I fold laundry. Somebody knows what I'm talking about. But I fold laundry. But after I fold laundry, I don't look at Amanda and go, Babe, will you marry me? Well, that would be stupid because we're already married. And I love her and she loves me. And so the, the deal's done. Like my father-in-law says, too many down payments. But anyway, so we're married. I love her. She loves me. And so because of that, as a response to my love for her and her love for me, I will do stuff like fold laundry. I'll do a lot of stuff. I'll watch Hallmark movies. I'll spend way too much time at Target. Way more time than a 30-year-old man should be at Target. But I'll do all that because I love her. And so that's how it is with Jesus. Uh, we know that God loves us. If we're a follower of Christ, we don't have to look very far. We just look at the cross. And we see that God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son to die for us. John 3.16. And we know that you know, we're going to do good works as a result and as a response to God's love. And he says, uh, these things are excellent. They're profitable for, notice, everyone. So these are people that are Christians and these are people who are not Christians as well. And so that's kind of the idea. Uh, believing precedes behaving, right? Uh, the gospel tells us to believe before the gospel tells us to behave. And so that's why our vision as a church is that we want to, we exist to have a passion for God and a compassion for people. And we don't have compassion for people so that we can impress God or earn God's love. We have compassion for people because we have God's love and because we know the gospel. We know that God loved us so much. He sent Jesus to pay the debt of our sin and to wash us clean of our sins, to give us a new birth and a new life. And so as a result, We'll look at people and have compassion on them, regardless of whether they're a follower of Christ or not. And so this, is, this ought to be true of us um, as a capital C church, the church, the universal church, and as a lowercase c, or a lowercase c church, uh, written Grace Brother Church, that we ought to be people that we uh, read about and we talk about, we sing about the gospel, and we ought to think to ourselves, how could we not be transformed by that message? How could we not have compassion on people? How could the story of Jesus loving us, forgiving us of our sins, not compel us to love and forgive other people? How could it not compel us to handle our finances and being generous? How could it not compel us to to want to uh, tell 2.2 billion people on the planet about Jesus, about the only way, the truth, and the life to get to heaven is through Christ? How could we not be compelled by that kind of message. And so that's, that's what compels us. It's the gospel. Believing precedes behaving. So we look at a message like this uh, that we've just been talking about for the past uh, 30 minutes or so. And what does this look like? How does this show up and intersect in our lives this week? Uh, what does this look like at the office? What does this look like at school, around the kitchen table, at home? Well, let me try to give you a couple of suggestions. Uh, thought this was helpful for me and maybe this could be helpful for you too. Um, if I'm feeling proud, that got cut off a little bit, but the first one's proud. If I'm feeling proud, um, I need to uh, remind myself of something. When I look at a passage like this, if I'm proud, the gospel reminds me that I'm more messed up than I think I am, right? We look at verse 3 and we learn pretty quickly that we all have a story. If we're followers of Christ, we know that our story doesn't define us, but it reminds us that we have a story and that we once were lost and dead in our Trespasses, and Christ came in and saved us and brought us uh, to enter his kingdom. 
And so we all have a story when we're frustrated with somebody, uh, whether it's a friend or family member or, or a coworker. And uh, if it's somebody, especially they don't know the Lord, it's easy to get frustrated and to think, man, they just got to get their act together. But the reality is the gospel tells us that we're actually more messed up than we think we are. I'm more messed up than I think I am. And so the second one, I would say if, if you're here this morning and, and you're feeling worthless, or if you have moments where you think, man, I'm just, I just feel worthless, I just want to encourage you. Some of you need to hear this this morning. The gospel tells us that we're more loved than we can ever dare to imagine, right? That, that Christ appeared, our Savior appeared, and he washed us of our sins. He gave us a new birth, this new life. And so you are incredibly valuable to God, so much that he would send Jesus to die for you. If I'm feeling hopeless, if any of you are feeling hopeless this morning, can I just encourage you with this? The gospel tells us that we receive the promise of eternal life with Jesus. For those of us who surrender our lives to Christ, we receive that amazing gift of grace, and we have the promise of forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That we live in a world now, the reality that we live in a world now that you know, you just turn on the news and you can see the, the horror and the uh, incredibly uh, painful things going on in this world. It's encouraging to know, I don't know about you, but I'm infused with so much hope to know that there will be a day where there's no more crying, no more mourning, no more pain, because we'll just be with Jesus for eternity. And so as a follower of Christ, I don't know about you, but I'm incredibly encouraged to know that, that there will be a day where that becomes you know, a reality. So let me encourage you with that. Uh, if you're sitting here today and you're thinking, I don't really know where I'm at with uh, Jesus. I've been coming here a, a long time, or maybe this is your first time. You might be thinking to yourself, uh, I, I have to think about these things. And I would ask you, have you been born again? And now that we've talked about what that kind of means, you have something to chew on. Um, this idea of, of being born again is the biggest decision that you'll ever make. But it's the best decision that you'll ever make. And so I would, I would ask you, uh, wrestle that question to the ground. Have I been born again? Have I actually experienced this new kind of birth, this new kind of life? And if you do that, it's really simple. You just say, Jesus, I surrender. I'm going to repent, change my thinking. I'm going to turn to you. And I'm going to recognize that you are the way, the truth, and the life. And then, Lord Jesus, I receive because it's a gift. It's not something that you can earn. Or it's not something that you deserve. I don't deserve it. None of us deserve it. But it's a gift that we can receive from Christ. Secondly, I would ask you this. Have you been baptized? What is baptism? Well, it's a lot like a wedding ring. It's like putting on a wedding ring. It's a way of identifying and saying that it's an outward expression of an inward commitment. And so when a Christ follower goes public in baptism... They're saying that I'm committed to following Jesus in discipleship. And this is the first step of obedience, uh, uh, followed by a whole lifetime of obedience of following him. And so I would encourage you to do that. Uh, if you have questions about that, you can ask me or Pastor Bud or any of our elders, and we would love to talk to you about what that might look like. But that's probably a good question to ask. And, and we as a church would love to champion you in either one of those decisions. We'd love to rally around you and encourage you as a church body. I just want to uh, invite the band to make their way up. And as they get settled in, I just want you to imagine with me for a second. Imagine what kind of church we could be if we grabbed a hold of this real salvation, right? Not this marketing salvation or these 
right? these fake salvation, but the real salvation, the salvation that the Bible talks about. What might our lives look like if we didn't tune out this message of salvation, but you know, didn't write it off as some antiquated, outdated thing? But what if we really latched on to the actual salvation as described in Scripture? What if we were open to the possibility that this salvation was and is real? That the same message of salvation that was alive over 2,000 years ago is still alive today? What if we realize that there are people in our spheres of influence who desperately need to hear this message of salvation, to be born again, to have a new birth, to have a new life that can only be found through Christ? I just want you to ponder these things this week as we go about our daily routine of work or school or whatever responsibilities we might have. And just remember that the gospel is the only message of salvation that will endure and have a profound impact in eternal ramifications. It's the only message that offers us a new birth and a new life. Let me pray for us. Well, Jesus, we just uh, recognize that, uh, that you're the king. And that all authority and power has been given to you. And we can rest in the fact that, uh, that everything is in your hands. And Lord, I just uh, thank you for the message uh, that Paul gave to Titus, chapter 3. God, thank you for that reminder that, that salvation is real and is available. And Lord, I just I thank you so much for everybody here this morning. Uh, I pray for the person that's been following you uh, almost their whole life, God, and just needs to have a boost of encouragement to know what they actually have in the promise of salvation and the hope that's found in only Christ. Lord, I pray for the person here that's wrestling these questions. Have I been born again? Uh, have I been baptized? Uh, or am I ready to be baptized? And uh, I pray for that person too, God, that you would uh, just make your gospel clear to them and uh, help help them understand that, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, God. Uh, we thank you for the promise of salvation, and uh, we pray that we can uh, represent you well this week, God, in, in our homes and in our workplaces. And uh, in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the Ritman Grace Podcast. If you have questions or would like to know more about our church, please visit www.ritmangrace.org or email us at ritmangbc at aol.com.